We'll be looking at the character of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. Why don't we just start off by reading, reading that together. Um, why don't you stand for the reading of Scripture? We'll be reading from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 11. That's 1 Samuel chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 11. There was a certain man of Ramathium Zohim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. As she, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. 
And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no, no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's common when someone is in distress and you are, find yourself in their presence to feel some level of discomfort yourself uh, and perhaps to be unsure of what to say to them. Um, and I've certainly done this. I would assume that most of you have as well. Inevitably, at some point, you've said the wrong thing. And your desire to comfort someone who is in pain or or who is in despair, you've said something that, despite your best intentions, has only wounded them further. And we see that happen here this morning between Hannah and her husband, Elkanah. And it speaks to the problem in the hearts of the people of Israel and, and to, the, to the problem at the heart of every man and woman, that we are idolatrous and we put other things in the place of God, the, that the implications of that play themselves out in so many ways, and this morning we see them playing out in the relationship between a husband and wife. The situation that we find here, a woman who does not have children, but whose husband has another wife. She is tormented by this woman, by, by Panina. She is mocked 
she feels, as she puts it, great anxiety and vexation. She cannot eat. She cannot worship. She is consumed by sadness, a deep soul-bound depression. In the culture at the time, children were the, one of the most, if not the most valuable thing that a person could have, especially a son. Um, not just for, uh, not just because they valued family or because they, they prized um, fatherhood, but because it was economically helpful to have children. Not even just helpful, but, but necessary. If you were a single person or a couple without children, unless you were already very rich, you would, have, you would fear for your future. You would have to throw yourselves on the kindness of your society, which at the time in Israel, before the kings, this is still in the time of judges, if you'll remember our, our story of uh, Gideon from a few weeks ago, um, Israel is not in a good place right now. There is not really a, 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 a functioning, God-honoring society to fall back on. And so, Elkanah has taken two wives, and, and the implication here is that Hannah, his first wife, is unable to have children, and so he's taken a second, and he has had children with her. We often read about characters in, in the Old Testament who, do, who have multiple wives, and, and the practice is strange to us and is directly um, condemned by the New Testament. And we're, it might be a little bit odd to read about this because Elkanah is not really the, the main character of the story, but so many other, um, at times, righteous or praised people in the Old Testament have taken multiple wives. And it is because of a cultural idolatry, right? The, the need for children was real, but, it, but that need and the desire for children has become something that hurts people and dehumanizes them. Idolatry dehumanizes us. And so in the life of Elkanah and Hannah, Hannah is truly sad, not simply because she can't have a child, but because her husband has had children with someone else, and she is constantly reminded of this fact. It says that when they go to worship, which is significant, because again, this is not, it's not that every family in, in Israel would go to worship year after year. This is, a, this is somewhat exceptional. They are truly seeking to honor God and be the people he's called them to be. Many, many pe people in Israel are not doing that. This is a time full of idolatry and turning away from God. Elkanah's desire is that his family would worship as well. He's doing the right thing, providing, spending a, a good deal of money and resources so that everyone in his family can offer sacrifices and participate in worship. And because he loves his wife, Hannah, he gives her a double portion extra, more than anyone else. And it, it's that act that, that compounds and exacerbates the tension that exists. Because now Panina is jealous of her. Polygamy is, is very common in the Old Testament, and yet it is always, every single time, the source of incredible pain and damage to the, to the, to the people, especially to the women who are put in these positions. The Old Testament always portrays it in this negative and tragic light. And so we see that play out here. And when I say that idolatry dehumanizes us, that is what 
I think is captured in Elkanah's attempt at comfort. So here is his wife. She is so sad she cannot eat. And they're, they're worshiping. They have, you know, this is, this is a huge moment in the year for them. Imagine going on one of the most, you know, expensive vacations, but add all the spiritual significance, you know, of, of, of worship into that. Um, and Elkanah just, he, he, he cannot empathize with her. And what he says is, am I not more to you than ten sons? Don't, you know, I love you. Isn't that enough? But because Elkanah, as so many in, his, in, the, in the culture of Israel have, because they have idolatrized their own families, he cannot see Hannah as, a val- as valuable for who she is. And he has undermined that by having children with someone else. What he should be saying is, are not you more to me than ten sons? No, it's a relationship, especially a marriage, but this is true of our, our relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church, with, with our friends and our neighbors. Relationships are so often to us about what we get from them. If you've ever worked at a, at a company with a friends and family discount, you suddenly have more friends and family than you realized, right? Because it's all of a sudden, it's, you know, it's uh, beneficial to be your friend. Um, and I've been there. I've, I've been able to share that with people. I've had friends share that with me. It is that we do gain great benefit from, from our relationships. But especially in the context of a marriage, if our spouse, if our husband or our wife is simply the source of something we value and not something to be, not someone to be valued, then we have committed idolatry. And our idolatry not only, you know, is a sin against God, but it will cause us to treat them in a less than loving way, in a a less than fully humanizing way. People are made in the image of God, and idolatry is when we give that image to something else. And so Elkanah, though he, 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 he does, I believe that he does love her, want to comfort her, he is blinded by this, and, and he, he only makes things worse. And so if relationships are about what we get from someone, then those relationships will not be healthy, will not be truly loving. This is a challenge to all of us in our, in our marriages, but also in our relationships with our children, with our friends, with our neighbors, do we know and love people for who they are? Or do we love what we get from them? Now to Hannah herself. She is deeply hurt because, again, this is year after year this has happened. She feels a great deal of shame because she has failed in her culture. Her, her culture values something that, that she cannot do. And she has no way of, of showing her worth. In a, you know, she, she, she feels not just shame from her culture, but then directly attacked by this other woman who is jealous of her, and, it, and there is some reason to be sympathetic for her jealousy. They are in a very unhealthy and unfortunate situation. In this, Hannah decides to pray. She, she can't eat. Um, she can't worship, she can't participate in the worship, she's, she's alone, she is just consumed by this, by this grief. 
she goes and she pours out her heart to God. And as she's doing so, of course, we don't have time to talk much about Eli, the, the high priest at this time, but Eli has no help to her either. So here she is in this desperate place, feeling alienated from her husband, who she should be affirmed by and loved by. She is dismissed by the representative of God. She is truly alone. And in her, in her loneliness and in her despair, she turns to God, the Lord of hosts, she says, the God of armies, the commander of heaven. She says, if you will look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She makes a vow. We'll come back to the significance of vows in a moment. But we don't, I think she, she probably says a lot more and it's not recorded for us because Eli sees her sees her mouth moving, assumes that she is drunk and insults him, insults her. But then he has a change of heart when she explains, and he says to her in verse 17, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So Elkanah, Eli has blessed her, but nothing has changed. She is still in this same relationship. Panina is, is still jealous of her. She is still childless. And yet, after pouring out her soul to God, casting her cares and anxieties on him, she is able again to eat and her face is no longer sad. She receives from God peace and comfort in the midst of her prayers. Peter, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle Peter describes this to us. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And isn't that exactly what Hannah needs to be restored, to feel confirmed. She, she, she feels shamed and, and, and alienated both from, from society and from her own family. She cannot eat. She feels weak. She needs strength and she needs to be established. She needs a firm foundation on which to simply live and get through the day. How many times do we find ourselves in a position like that where we feel alienated from the sources of comfort and stability in our lives, whether from our families, our, our communities, our society? And in those moments when we experience anxiety and vexation and even despair, 
God in his word calls us and assures us that he will meet us there and that he will provide what we need. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us in his timing and in his way. God sees us, and when we are alone, he is with us. He loves us and cares for us. Hannah is able to experience peace from this time of prayer because she knows who God is. She has great faith in him, and she has great theological knowledge of who he is and what he does, as exemplified by the prayer of of thanksgiving she prays later on, which we read. And we we have to be reminded, Hannah has no, she has no theological education. She hasn't read, been to a school or or read theology books. No, she knows God's word, and she has prayed before, and she has lived in the faith. She knows that God is sovereign and in control of all things. Twice in the, in, in the beginning of this chapter, the text tells us that God closed her womb. That is how the people would have seen that kind of situation. Right? If, if a woman can't have children, it, it, must be, it must be because of God. He is in control of everything. And we, we don't like to do that. When, things are, when negative things happen, we don't like to ascribe those things to God. Sometimes we might even, you know, we will just, we'll talk about how, you know, the, well, the world is broken and that's, that happens because of that. Or we'll even ascribe something like that to, to the devil who was mentioned in the, in, in the first Peter passage. But the ancient people, the people of Israel, ascribe this situation directly to God. This is, this is by the hand of God. We don't know why. It's not because of any sin in Hannah's life. But ultimately, everything comes from him. He is in control. And instead of being cynical or angry or despairing because of that, that knowledge and that assurance is exactly what allows Hannah to pray and what allows her prayer to give her peace. It's because she believes that God is truly in control and that if he has put her in this position, he can take her out of it. So Hannah prays for a son, but not simply for a son. She says that, Lord, if you give me this son, I will devote him to you. No razor shall touch his head. He will take a vow, uh, a priestly vow. He will not be able to own land. He will live a life devoted to God he will not have an inheritance. He will not be all of the things that a son needs to be to provide for a family. He will not himself have a family. None of the, uh, none of the things that our culture has idolatrized or, or lifted to a high position will be true of this child. Hannah will not benefit from him in any of those ways. Instead, what what Hannah would receive and what she does receive is vindication. She is exalted. As Peter says in, in, in the verse we read, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, so that he may vindicate you. She is not praying simply for a son. 
She is praying for vindication, for affirmation, for the knowledge that she is valuable, made in the image of God, and that nothing her culture or even her family says or does can take that away. And God, in his goodness and in his sovereign plan for the nation of Israel, blesses her and chooses to answer this prayer. And her son Samuel goes on to be one of the great prophets of the nation of Israel and leads them into the era of kings, chooses David, and is an essential part of God's history of salvation that leads to Jesus. So Hannah's vow is not a formula for us to follow or emulate. This is a, this is a little bit strange and perhaps counterintuitive. Often, even when we, t- we think about, when we th- modern people think about depression, we often think about the stages of grief. Bargaining is one of those, and obviously that's what she's doing here. She's bargaining with God, and you've probably been at that place. Maybe you didn't mean what you said, but you said, God, if you would just do this thing, I will do X, Y, Z. Martin Luther, the reformer, thought he was going to die in a thunderstorm. It was a terrible storm, and he did that. He made a vow to God. God, if if I survive this, I'm, I'm becoming a priest. He did survive, and he kept his vow. And that's what the Old Testament law tells the people of God. If you make a vow to God, keep it. But Jesus said something different. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said when you make a vow, keep it. But I'm, I'm telling you, do not make a vow to God. Don't make a vow. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Now why is that? Because, I mean, Hannah makes a vow and, and she does keep it. The thing about vows is that keeping them is exceptional. Keeping them is exceptional. They are easy to make and easier to break. Easy to convince ourselves that you know, what, what we said wasn't really, wasn't really important. We said it in the heat of the moment. What is, you know, God doesn't take that seriously. But he does. That's, that is actually what, what the commandment not to take God's name is about. Don't take God's name in vain for a vow that you're not going to fulfill. But all the more, we shouldn't make vows. We don't need to make vows in prayer because of what God does in this story and what he does throughout the story of redemption. God is the one who makes vows. God is the one who creates covenants and swears oaths. And he is the one who keeps them. It says when, when Hannah does conceive her child that God remembered her. And that's, what, that's how the Bible, both the old and new, talks about God's action. He remembers his people. He remembers his covenant. He remembers his promise. And when he remembers, he acts. When we remember our oaths, we feel guilt and shame, and maybe we act But we can't count on ourselves and we can't always count on others. We can always count on God and always trust him to fulfill his oaths and his promises. And his oaths and his promises are so much greater and better than any of ours. And they make anything that we would vow or, or swear to him obsolete and unnecessary. We've read this morning, 
from Mary's song of praise, the angel Gabriel announces that she will conceive a child and call his name Jesus. Also in, in the Gospel of Luke, leading up to, uh, leading up to that moment, when Zechariah and his wife conceive a child who will be John the Baptist, who will go before Jesus to prepare his way, Zechariah was filled with the Spirit and he prophesies. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That is the oath, the covenant, and the promise that God has made to his people. And that is the promise he has made to us who receive those promises in Jesus. At the end of, of her story, Hannah keeps her vow. But first she, she weans her child. She doesn't give an infant over to the priest at the temple. She, she raises him. We don't, it doesn't say how old he was, but it does say that he was young, weaned, no longer breastfeeding. Yeah, I have two daughters of my own, um, and I, I can't imagine being in this position where you would conce conceive, raise, and nurture a child. How much more than for me as a father is it for her as a mother to do this, to give up her son? It reminds me of, of when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Why are there these stories about people giving up their children? On the one hand, it's, it's because God is showing himself to be different from the gods of the other nations. When God intervenes in Abraham's life, he provides a sacrifice so that Abraham doesn't have to sacrifice Isaac because God is not a God who desires the sacrifice of people, especially children. Many of, the, many of the idols that were worshipped uh, did. That's what people believed. But it also points forward to the other child that we've been talking about and singing about all morning. It's, it's not a big leap to see that God, who is with us in our pain and despair and who knows it, who cares about us, enters into that in our world also gives up a child, gives his son. Once and for all. So no more sacrifices need to be made and no more children need to be abandoned or given up 
whether, whether, whether because we're deceived or because God needs them, there is, there is no need for that, no sacrifice, no, no, <laughs> no, no separations. God, God has broken himself and sacrificed his own son to make us whole, to establish, strengthen, and affirm us. God knows what it is like to give up something that is loved, to experience that pain. But God also knows what it's like to be vindicated, redeemed, as Jesus is risen from the dead. And that, then, is the hope that we have as well. We do not need to make vows. God has, God has made a vow to us. And in Jesus, that vow is that not only are our sins forgiven, not only can we walk in holiness, but that we will live again, that we will be vindicated by rising from the dead. Not every prayer that we, not every request that we share with God will be answered as miraculously as this one of Hannah's is. Many have, have prayed for healing and not received it or prayed for a child and not received it. And yet, God is a vindicator, a redeemer, a horn of salvation for his people. And he will be that for us when we live and rise again in a new heaven and a new earth. As we await that, we can cast our cares on him knowing that he cares for us knowing that he sacrificed his own son for us, not having to make any sacrifices of our own, not making any vows or oaths that we could never fully fulfill, simply receiving his, living in the peace of that, and being comforted in the midst of our anxieties and our despair. And so as we think about the faith of Hannah, the, 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 the desperate situation that she was placed in, we can confront our own idols. What are the, the idols of our, of our culture, the idols, idols of our subculture or even our family? How do those idols cause us to dehumanize the people around us, to see, them as, as, to see those relationships as things that we benefit from as opposed to people to be known and loved? To know that God is truly in control and sovereign over all things and to allow that as as full of mystery as it is to fuel our prayers, to truly pour ourselves out to him, knowing that he can change and intervene in any way. And finally, being affirmed and assured that we don't need to make any grand gestures, sacrifices, or pledges, because God has done all of that for us in Christ, who died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins and for the resurrection of the dead. We too will be vindicated, will be established. We taste that now when we pray and cast our anxieties on him. We will receive it in full when he comes again. So let's pray. Again, I want to read Hannah's prayer from, from Samuel 2, where she praises and celebrates what God has done. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. 
There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has, no, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Amen.